It's old timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here with a true crime tale from the days of yore and yesteryear for the delight of your ear holes. <laughs> the delight of your ear holes. The delight of your ear holes. And it is really one of the most unique cases I think we've ever done. Um, I actually had this on my list for Detectives by the Decade, my other podcast that I did for a couple seasons, but then chronic pain basically took over my life and I can barely keep up with this. <laughs> so I do this and that's it. But I had this on my list and I was really looking forward to it and I was like, I was doing Detectives by the Decade chronologically. I was still in like the late 1800s. It's going to be a minute. It's going to be a minute anyhow. So even if I do eventually get to it on Detectives by the Decade... Yeah, I'll, I'll have forgotten it by then. <laughs> and you all will too. So, so yes, before we get to that, over on the Patreon, we are having so much fun. Um, we are recording two bonus episodes a week and, and shoring them up. So um, this week, our patrons will hear in like two weeks and three weeks. Yeah, it's going to be confusing. Yes, it Mostly is. Mostly for us. Yeah, pretty much for us. They don't, I mean, they, they, they get... The content when they get it and they listen to it and they enjoy it. But in a couple weeks, our patrons will hear what we recorded today, which was uh, we did a little trip through the old timey newspapers, specifically looking up individual words that we were curious to see, especially in the, the New York Daily News, which was quite the gem of the day for crazy, weird, wild, wacky stuff. And so we looked up words like masher. Which, of course, is the 20s. That was a good one. That was a good one, yeah. The 20s and 30s word for somebody who uh, harasses women. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, we looked up lurid. And we looked up an advice column and found some rather uh, <sighs> misogynist advice from a woman to other women. Did you know that we, we shouldn't give men advice, apparently? Never. Just never. keep our pretty mouth shut. Yeah, pretty much. Or hint, and I'm sorry, but we all know that hints don't work. Yeah, we're supposed to hint gently. Hint gently. <laughs> so that was entertaining. I think that was still in the time period before women were um, considered to have brains. Pretty much, yeah. And it, it annoyed men if women were presumptuous enough to think that they had brains. <laughs> how dare that? How dare. So we also had quite a tale in there with probably one of the best phrases I think we've ever found on this show. Snappy-looking whoopee snapper. Snooper. Damn it. It's hard. It's a tough one. Snappy-looking whoopee snooper. Whoopee snooper. Yes. And uh, that pretty much turned into a Dr. Seuss book for a moment yeah. about bootlegging. Yes, because that is what a whoopee snooper is. It's somebody who goes after bootleggers. Or, as in this gentleman's case... Goes after bootleggers, but really just drinks all their booze and enjoys it. Because they had such good rum. They had such good booze. So, yes, and then Amber told me uh, the story of Carl Wanderer. And he's his... He's a wanderer. His interesting uh, life and his poor wife. Yes, yes, and his wandering penis. It's, it's, he did have quite the case of wandering penis, yes. So... Over on the Patreon, that's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. You can get all that and so much more. We give uh, five bonus episodes every month for $5 a month. And uh, you can support the show that way, too. And we very much appreciate all of our patrons who do that. And you can also get a shout-out on the show where I will sing your name. Or you can request that Amber, you know, like, moans it or something. Whatever you want. That won't be creepy at all. Yeah, we can <laughs> scream it We could scream want. it, yeah, yeah. Make sure, you know, kind of protect the mic, but... <laughs> so, so yes, um, we are going to talk today about a gentleman named Harold Israel. This is just such a fascinating case to me, and it's um, you're it it has a very unexpected twist. It does. <laughs> so you don't see this too much. So first, I want to talk about Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is where Harold would run into a little bit of trouble. Some fun and useless facts for you. On Bridgeport, uh, P.T. Barnum lived there in the 1800s and was the mayor in 1871. Ooh. So that's who you want as a mayor, P.T. Barnum. That's who I want as a mayor. <laughs> True, yeah. His circus wintered there, so you'd have all the circus folk there, and he had four houses in town. You got to have somewhere to put the bearded lady. Exactly, yes, yes. And the world's tallest man. The town is also the birthplace, kind of, of the Frisbee. 
or at least possibly the pie plate that was made into a Frisbee. Some, okay. It, it, that happened in California, and some folks were on the beach, and they were like, hey, we can throw this pie plate back and forth, and people started to get really interested. So, And also the world's first Subway restaurant in 1965. Oh, there you have it. So a lot has happened there. Uh, but we're going to go back about 40 years before that Subway was established, and the, the sandwich artists started doing their, their dastardly work, <laughs> and to February 1924. And the population of Bridgeport then was just over 140,000. So if you opened up the newspaper uh, in that February of 1924, on specifically this day, the 4th, some of the headlines that you would see as you're sipping your, your morning coffee would be, Woodrow Wilson dies, so the former president had passed away, motor fuel from water by Frenchman's achievement. Some Frenchman thought that he had... Uh, Managed to turn water into gas, I guess. Oh. Uh, mercury goes way below zero in several sections of the country, so it was a little chilly in places. Movie stars are barred at Yale prom by faculty. So the deal was that one of the follies of one of the various types of follies they had, you know, the dancing girls, had been invited the year before, and every dude deserted his date because he wanted to dance with her. So they were trying to ban movie stars, the two that were invited by Yale um, students from the prom. How dare they? Yeah, right? So, and also the first Winter Olympics were just finishing up in Chamonix, France. Ah. Speaking of competitions, if you wanted to, as you discover in this newspaper, you could enter your name into the popularity contest. I would lose. Apparently it was being run through the state armory in Bridgeport, which I have a question mark after that because I don't fully understand what's happening here. But the first prize was an Oldsmobile worth $1,000. Second prize was a player piano worth $500. And third prize, a bedroom suit worth $400. All in all, 3,000 in prizes to go to the 15 most popular girls in the Spring Fashion Exposition. If you went to the movies... You might see Our Hospitality with Buster Keaton, the frozen-faced comedian, as he was called in the ads. And this was called, by its own ads, the greatest seven-reel comedy ever screened. That's a little specific, but... It is, but I mean, to call itself the greatest is probably the only seven-reel comedy ever screened. (laughs) Now, if you were more in the mood for something serious, okay, and you were in Bridgeport, you could go down to the Majestic and watch Anna Christie based on Eugene O'Neill's Pulitzer Prize play, featuring what the Bridgeport Telegram calls the most unconventional heroine ever brought to the silver sheet. Okay. It wasn't the silver screen yet. It was the silver sheet. Because it was likely an actual sheet. Probably, yeah. Somebody's top sheet that Amber's husband didn't want. Um, (laughs) Sorry, we just had a whole conversation about how her husband can't stand the top sheet. (laughs) So anyhow... And you'd want to make sure you saw it, because as the telegram told us, the Bridgeport telegram, one simply is out of the running who hasn't seen it. So if you haven't seen this movie, you are nobody. Apparently. (laughs) You are a nothing. And if you went to the theater, which was a pretty popular thing to do in Bridgeport, which had a thriving theater district, you might go to see Ned Wayburn's spectacular review in eight acts, uh, honeymoon Cruise, it was called, at the Palace Vaudeville, and it also featured the group Wayward Wayburn's Women. Women spelled W-I-M-M-I-N. Oh my. Isn't that nice? But what you'd probably want to do, if you don't want to be out of the running, is go see Ethel Barrymore at the New Lyric Theater. Now, she was only playing for uh, two days, February 4th and 5th. You could get the best seats in the evening show for $3.00. Or cheap seats for 50 cents or anywhere in between. So that is playing the night of February 4th, 1924, uh, which was a Monday. And Main Street, where the theater district was, was hopping. Quote, hundreds of persons afoot in automobiles and on streetcars close by. It was also very well lit. There's lots of electric lights. There's no shortage. So Ethel Barrymore was playing in Laughing Lady at the New Lyric Theater at 8 o'clock. But at 7.45, something far more dramatic happened on the street not far away. There was a murder of a priest. 
And this was called by the mayor of Bridgeport the most shocking crime of its kind in the history of Bridgeport. So it was Father Hubert Dame. He was taking his customary evening walk after dinner. He left the rectory around 7.25. About 20 minutes later, somebody came up to him at at the intersection of Main and High Street in the theater district and shot him in the head from behind. Now, this was a very crowded area, but apparently a lot of people just thought it was a car backfiring, which we don't see as often as I would expect. No, I really, the movies make it seem like we're going to see that so much more. But no. There have been recent shootings that took place during like fireworks and parades and stuff where people thought it was something associated with those festivities. But yeah. Well, I think that's today's answer for cars backfiring. I don't think they do it nearly as much. Yeah, they barely do. I, I can't remember the last time I heard a car backfire. So, uh, yes, Father Dame was shot just behind the left ear by an unidentified man who then fled. Dame was taken to the hospital where he died two hours later without having regained consciousness. We're not going to hear anything from the victim here. Now, there was big, big pressure from the public to find the killer. I mean, first of all, Father Dame was such a beloved figure that they were starting to worry a little bit about vigilante justice. Even if they, the vigilantes found the wrong person, they might still hang that person if they were certain enough. And secondly, this is a big town, big time Catholic town. 32% uh, were what the census described as foreign born white in uh, 1920. And so Father Dame was one of that population. He'd actually been born in Emmerich, Germany in 1867, then came to America when he was young, leaving the rest of his family in Germany. He had several brothers and a sister. He became a priest in 1895 and was assigned to St. Germ- Jesus, literally, St. Joseph's German Roman Catholic Church in Bridgeport in 1900. Now, when he came there, it was just a little church on Madison Avenue that was pretty heavily in debt. But he got the debt issue cleared up, and then he built a convent and a school, and he was really pretty damn good at running things. But it seemed to stress him out somewhat. In 1913, he had to take a leave of absence for his health. The community was not taking this well. A quote from the newspapers, The people of St. Joseph's have learned to love their pastor whose tact and executive ability combined with a fine exemplification of his priestly duties have served to endear him to them in a measure that will make it difficult for him to be replaced. So after a winter in England, and then some time in Europe, with a chunk of time spent in Germany with his family, of course, he returned in July of that year, quote, improved in health and refreshed in spirits. So there was one incident from his past, that was alluded to in the papers upon his death, although police were very quick to say there was no connection. Of course not. Of course not. At some point, the the priest had been sued by the relative of a hermit who had died and left $45,000 to the church. So that, I don't know whatever came of that suit. wasn't really something I could find, especially since the person was very rarely named, and sometimes the Bridgeport telegram was nigh impossible to read. (laughs) It was very, very blurry. But also, and I don't know if the laws are are still the same now as they used to be, but if somebody willed something, you can't argue it. That was their legal document saying, this is where I want my money to go. And whether some nephew thinks that they're entitled to it matters not. Sometimes those cases can get a little ways in the courts, but I think it's generally a waste of time. And that's why some people, when they want specifically to keep someone out of their will, they'll do the thing where they leave them a paltry sum. So it can't be like, oh, well, he just forgot me. Yes. <laughs> Which in itself shouldn't be, you know, should, should be a rather damning argument against the person complaining. <laughs> but if they forgot you. Yeah, that's really the only thing they can say is that they were perhaps coerced by another family member and they weren't of sound mind. Yeah, yeah. But this guy's a hermit. He wasn't coerced by anybody. <laughs> because he wasn't talking to anyone. So in 1923... The crowning achievement of Father Dame's career was announced. The parish was going to build a church, uh, was going to be about $100,000, this endeavor, which is $1.7 million today. Gothic design, primarily of granite, seating capacity of 1000 
The cornerstone was laid in Easter of that year. And so in 1924, at age 56, Father Dame was the longest-serving Roman Catholic priest in the city. He was, again, having heart problems, um, and he'd even gone to Germany again a year prior to see his brother, who was a prominent physician there. So his superiors had been telling him he should take a trip for his health, but he really wanted to stick around and oversee construction on the new building. So he is so, so beloved that even in the days before the funeral, people filled the church so much that some people had to kneel in the snow and ice outside. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was there. And then the actual funeral was attended by twelve to 15,000 people, including 112 priests. Damn. Yeah, that's a lot of priests. Newspapers said that Father Dame, quote, was not only admired and loved by members of his own parish, but by those of other parishes of the city and other creeds. They did do the thing where they kept an eye on the funeral, but what they did was they picked up witnesses who had given them statements about something they'd seen, especially if they'd seen a man that they might be able to identify, the shooter, and they hid them in various areas so that they could keep a lookout and see if they spotted that person. They did not see anybody. <laughs> so the investigation, as you can tell, is really heating up. The night of the murder, over 50 people contacted the police to offer the use of their cars in the hunt for the murder. All right. Apparently that's what some people do when they hear about a murder. They're like, those cops must need my car. I better call them. You can come get my, my vehicle if you want it. It's all yours. So uh, various newspapers and uh, the contractor heading up the church construction raised rewards of over uh, $2,500. That's $43,000 today. The housekeeper who had worked for him for 27 years, Miss Nellie Hines, was said to be almost prostrated with grief. She said, quote, only a crazy man could have killed him. Aww. So they had a decent amount of evidence to start with. Seven eyewitnesses who claimed that they had seen the shooter, although in the newspapers the description of him is called meager, and also the, the information they give is called trifling information. So it feels like not a lot of stock is being put into these witnesses to begin with. But they it, said... It, it, it looked like a man. <laughs> Definitely a man. Five foot six... 130 to 135 pounds, dark coat, dark cap, and dark overcoat. One of the witnesses even did specify that the coat had a, a velvet collar. And I'm like, did you touch him? <laughs> like, how would you know? Right? Now, Father Dame was said to have no enemies, and he'd never mentioned anything to most people that might make them think someone had a grudge against him. So they're talking to everyone with whom he came into contact, and that included the workmen building the new church, as well as uh, known drug addicts and people accused of or suspected of selling liquor, quote, who might have imagined Father Dome had betrayed their activities to the authorities, according to the Hartford Current, which just feels like they love doing this. They love rounding up anybody who's addicted to anything or who they suspect might have done something wrong, it's the flimsiest excuse. Let's arrest 68 people. Yes, absolutely. This is a good use of our time and energy and money. So they also cracked open the safe in his bedroom and sitting room. Now, most people said no one had a grudge against him. But there were some sort of rumors about letters he had received. The Hartford Current reported three days after the murder that Father Dame had received three threatening letters, quote, promising bodily harm and death if he did not pay over sums of money. The threatening letters were received between August and December 1923 and were shown to intimate friends, but were never referred to the police. So other papers refuted that and said, oh, it's just gossip. But another man of the cloth... Reverend Dr. Charles A. Quigley said that several months prior, Dame had hinted that he had been getting some threats. So that sounds more solid. Now, Quigley specified that the threats were attempts to get favors from Dame in connection with the new church building. 
So this is what happened. They had a conversation when Dame was visiting him. Dame said, you have considerable experience. Tell me, have you ever had men try to force themselves upon you, either to favor them with work or to buy materials for building? Quigley said, I always refer such people to the contractor. Then Dame responded with a twinkle in his eye, someone will threaten to treat you rough no matter what you might say. So he says, even if he, you know, basically he's saying, even if I referred them to the contractor, they'd still threaten me. You know, that's not going to stop the threats from coming. And this new church was really, really important to him. Although it seemed like he had some sort of doomed feelings. He, there we go. Just a few weeks before his death, he had said that the new church would be his monument. Basically saying, here's my giant gravestone. I'm going to die soon. Well, but you said he had heart problems. Yeah, so there's that too. It could have been more of that where he's like, I'm afraid my ticker is going to give out soon, but I want to do this before I die. Yeah. I mean, he's only 56, but he's feeling the years creep up on him. He's had to leave work once or twice because of health. So yeah, but also getting those threats couldn't really have improved his frame of mind in that respect either. No, if something doesn't, if something doesn't get me, the other thing will. Yeah, yeah. So the superintendent of police, Flanagan, told the press uh, about the gun. He said it was a 32 caliber, and it was the outside lubricant type, not made in America, but common in Central Europe. So then, of course, there was some scuttlebutt of, oh, did he piss somebody off when he was in Germany? And then did they follow him overseas to shoot him in his own town? He must have really pissed him off. Right? If somebody would go to those lengths, and it's not like travel back then, you could just hop a flight, you know? No, you're on that boat for weeks. Yep. But as for the man who had shot him, nobody could be sure whether that man had been walking with Father Dame or behind him. Was this man, you know, next to him and then somebody he knew? Was it someone behind him at stalking him? The people who were closest to the murder uh, at the time it happened said they hadn't seen the men exchange any words. So it seemed that kind of pushed it a little bit towards walking behind him. But we don't know. The police also complained that every housewife and young kid was claiming to have witnessed the murder just for a shot of attention. That sounds about right. Yeah. And uh, the police had nothing. I mean, all this, this evidence, that knowing about the gun, eyewitnesses and everything, they didn't have any theories to give to the public. No one could understand why this happened, and I think that made people even more frustrated. So the newspaper headlines were not flattering about this. Uh, we had some, like, police probe fails to gain single result. Authorities without even flimsiest clue to murder of Reverend Dame. So they probably are reading their morning paper and getting a little agitated, I would imagine. Eight days after the murder, the police found someone. Found a man named Harold Israel. Now, Israel was already in jail on a concealed weapons charge in Norwalk, which is about 15 miles from Bridgeport. And they were like, yeah, well, sure, he'll fit the bill. Let's talk about Harold. Let's go, ba go back and talk about his life. He was pretty young. He had been born in 1903 in Mar Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, which is coal country. So he's this 1924, so he's 21 or thereabouts now. Interestingly, Mount Carmel, the town, is named after the Holy Mountain in Israel, which is kind of weird that there's a family named Israel. Yeah. <laughs> so naturally, in coal country, Israel's dad was a miner and his mother was German. Germans love Pennsylvania. Like the Swedes and the Norwegians love Minnesota. Yeah. It's a thing where it's, it's, a, it's a familiar landscape. It's a familiar climate. And it just feels like home. Yeah, that, that is a really big thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we've had, we, Pennsylvania has just been, German immigrants love to stay here. But then the, the, the Swedes and the Norwegians, they'd get to Pennsylvania and they'd be like, there must be somewhere colder. <laughs> Please. So, Israel's mother died when he was six, leaving Harold Israel and his four siblings. Israel was the baby, with the oldest being 10 years his elder, but his father also had four other children, 
Harold's half-siblings from a previous relationship, with the oldest being 20 years older and born the same year that Thomas Edison placed one of his first generator plants in Mount Carmel itself. It was one of the first towns in the U.S. to have electric lights on its streets. I guess the coal's already there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so he has lots of siblings ranging from, you know, there's 20 years older than him, and then there's, like, you know, just within a few years of him. So his mother had died of exhaustion. She was only 39. I feel her. Yeah, yeah, having those kids and then also probably taking care of the half-siblings that were not able to take care of themselves yet when she married, because some of them would be as young as, I think, around 10. So, yeah, that's, that's exhausting. So, and in coal country, where you're, you're probably living hand-to-mouth. Yeah, exhaustion sounds about right. Yeah, exhaustion is, I give up. Good night. Yes. So, as for Harold... Young Harold here, it's possible he may have been sent off to another family where he would work in exchange for room and board. He could read and write, but school was not really a priority, you know, when you're just struggling to get by. So he entered the military and was stationed in Panama. In 1924, he had been discharged. He had a couple of army pals who were staying in Bridgeport, so he went to stay with them for a bit. At the start of his visit, he had $300. And he said he was just going to go home once he ran out of money. Uh, 300 is $5,000 today. So I guess he'd run out of money. And something had happened with his rooming situation. Uh, he maybe got kicked out because he couldn't pay up. Just plan for travel. Yeah. <laughs> Don't stay somewhere until your money runs out. Stay somewhere until your money gets to the point where you only have enough money to get home. And then go home. <laughs> like, if you're going to do it this way, like, plan for the worst. So he had no money, no roof over his head. He was trying to get back to his family home uh, over 200 miles away back in Pennsylvania. So around 1 a.m., he's wandering the streets of Norwalk, and a cop saw him and thought he was acting a little weird. And that's all the specifics we ever get about that, as far as I could tell. He looked weird. He was acting peculiar, but they don't give us any, you know, you got to give me more than that. So... I mean, acting weird is not probable cause. But they stopped him, and they found that he had a gun on him. And uh, they arrested him for carrying a concealed weapon. So then a reporter saw that an itinerant man had been arrested in a nearby town with a thirty-two caliber. He put two and two together, called up the Bridgeport police, and he was like, yo, I think I got a dude you want to talk to. So they checked out Harold, they checked out the gun, and they got more and more confident that this was their guy. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like Nutting Day, while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. <laughs> nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? In the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. He'd been in the area when the shooting happened. Uh, He did resemble the meager physical descriptions of the murderer that had been gathered. And 32 caliber, 32 caliber, you know, that was what was used in the shooting. That was what had gotten him into trouble was carrying that. And uh, in, in the gun that he was carrying, this looked even worse, there were four bullets and one empty chamber. 
So it looked like maybe he had shot one person. They got a ballistics expert who did match the bullet taken from the victim to Harold's gun. Now, Prosecutor Harold Cummings said regarding the evidence, upon its face, at least, it seemed well nigh a perfect case and said that some people described it as 100% perfect. Not looking good for Harold. So, what was Harold up to the night of the murder? What's his alibi? He said he went to the movies solo. The police were like, nah, I don't think so. Nope. So they charged him with murder. They also solicited help from the public and any, you know, eyewitness accounts or whatever that would help to pin him to this crime, even while feeding them negative information about Harold through the press. They called him a liar, said he was, quote, a rather queer sort of fellow. Asked the public to come forward, quote, if you have any information or are of the opinion that you saw a suspicious character that may be Harold Israel. So, yeah, I think they're pretty settled on him. Yeah. I think that they are going to have it be him, regardless. They have decided that it is him, and nothing can change their minds. So, of course, people did come forward. They came in, looked at him, said that's the guy, and added to the pile of evidence. One of those was a waitress who worked in a restaurant a block from the scene of the crime. She said she'd been in her restaurant just before the murder and seen someone who looked like Harold walk past. She also had some things to say about, um, she said she knew Harold. She thought he was guilty. And so she has this whole story, which keep that in your head. That's going to turn around a little bit. And uh, then we have four people saying they saw him running away after the murder. Now, this all culminated in a 28-hour interrogation of Harold Israel. And at the end of that, he confessed, first orally and then on paper. So, that prosecutor we mentioned, Prosecutor Harold Cummings. Nope, Homer Cummings. Harold Cummings? Homer. It's Homer, but it's Homer and Harold and so I call him, I have him as Harold in several places here because I just kept on giving him Harold's name for some reason. So, Prosecutor Homer Cummings got very interested in the case, and we're going to talk a little bit more about him than we usually do about a prosecutor. Because he's pretty instrumental in Harold Israel's eventual fate. Incredibly instrumental. <laughs> yes. Far more so than most prosecutors, even. Uh, he was just three years younger than uh, the good reverend who was the victim. So Cummings came from a completely different background than these guys. He had a nice, solidly upper middle class upbringing. His family had been in North America since the 1620s, having come over from Scotland. He said, uh, very, had high praise for his own parents. He said his father was, quote, one of the kindest men in the world, and his, he called his mother talented and beautiful. Money was just not a concern here. His father had a cement mill. I mean, he was, he was going to go on to a bright future as long as he applied himself. So he was born and raised in New York State. He got his bachelor, bachelor's of philosophy and law degree from Yale. And by the time he was 23, he was a practicing lawyer. At age 27, he married to Helen Woodruff Smith, who was the daughter of a millionaire banker, and Commodore, thank you very much. Ooh. So, quote, she was known as one of the best whips in the country. I think that has something to do with horse riding. Excelling in all outdoor sports with a great fondness for animals, a pleasing unconventionality, and an unceasing fund of humor. So this is, uh, their wedding was, as you would imagine, daughter of a millionaire banker Commodore. On a yacht. On a freaking yacht. This is uh, Ken Armstrong's description of their wedding from the Smithsonian Mag. The couple went aboard the banker's 108-foot yacht, a mile out on Long Island Sound, with orchestra on deck and pleasure vessels all around, cannons booming, the bride's veil pinned with a diamond star, the wedding ring a constellation of diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphires. Her poor hand probably couldn't be held up for long amounts of time. <laughs> Jesus. She's like, can I rest my hand somewhere? <laughs> 
Yes, that is something. I really wish that they had better photography back then because I want to see that, that ring. So these two, uh, Helen and Homer, a lot of H's in this story, they went on to have, a, to have a son and they were together for 10 years before divorcing. There was a little scandal there. Uh, she showed up in the papers regarding a breach of promise suit. Yeah, there was like a whole thing in the papers about an 18-year-old filing a breach of promise suit against her because he said that she'd said she would marry him in love letters. Keep in mind, she was still married when these love letters were going around. Eek! Yeah, so, but she did win that suit because they were like, okay, so yeah, these are love letters, but there's nothing in them that's a promise, so you're out. Homer Cummings' next marriage lasted 19 years until they divorced, and then he had two more marriages to wives that he outlived. So altogether married four times, one child. He got into politics. He served as mayor of Stamford for two terms, uh, following, following in P.T. Barnum's hallowed footsteps of being the mayor of a town in Connecticut, working as a committee man for the National Democratic Party, and then in 1914, he started working as state attorney for Connecticut. So that's where he was 10 years later, in 1924, when someone shot and killed Father Dame, and Harold Israel found himself as the prime suspect. Now, while it seems like everyone in town was ready to hang Israel from the nearest lamppost, Cummings said that some people didn't really buy it. They thought maybe Israel was innocent. So he goes full private investigator. He is basically redoing this investigation. I love it. On his own. It's, it's excellent. It's amazing. It is serious, like, dedication here to justice. He dug through the file. He basically tried to just soak in the case. He talked to witnesses himself rather than relying on the written reports. And then he did his own sort of reenactment, but from the, the witness's point of view, kind of looking at the scene from their physical perspective. So he's looking at it from every angle and many times trying to decide, could they have seen what they said they saw? Is it, is it even possible? So the charges are already laid. He's, he's done this investigation. And then he comes before the court. He laid out all the evidence, all the witness accounts, the ballistics, the gun possession, the confession. And then he said, It goes without saying that it is just as important for a state's attorney to use the great powers of his office to protect the innocent as it is to convict the guilty. Amber, I think we've actually found a lawyer we can love. <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> My show notes are... An honest lawyer? <laughs> My show notes are, well, Jesus Christ. And so Homer Cummings proceeded to protect the innocent. He laid out all the evidence he'd found that poked giant holes in the certainty of Harold Israel's guilt. That evidence presented in, as the Bridgeport Telegram said, the minutest detail. All right, so we're going to go through... And we're going to poke all the holes now. Let's poke the holes. So the waitress at the restaurant, the way the restaurant was set up and the way the windows were specifically, she really couldn't even see people passing by clearly. Yeah. So basically it was like a glass partition and then the, the front window. And with the two panes separated between a, a few feet and the light between them, there was such distortion. Mm-hmm. That you might be able to see, like, people moving, but you wouldn't be able to see a single detail. And we're also talking, like, 1920s or earlier glass, too. Mm -hmm. So you add all that to the fact that it, it's probably not super visible anyhow. Yeah, she couldn't see shit. She couldn't see shit. Well, and when Cummings actually interviewed her personally, she's like, I don't really know. Yeah, she kind of, like, backed down on her statements. God love that. Another witness claimed to have seen Harold running from the scene of the crime. They said the murderer was carrying a black pistol with a matte finish. Harold's gun was nickel-plated. Another witness's story changed and just generally seemed a little too vivid. I think imaginative has been the word used to apply to that. <laughs> then... Cummings presented the evidence he'd gotten from ballistics experts outside 
of the investigation. These are really prominent, well-educated experts. He had had six of them test the gun that had been on Harold's person. Yeah, he was not kidding. Instead of getting like one or two, he's like, I'll get six and I will jam this down their throat. Exactly, yeah. That's, that's very much what he does. I will jam this down their throat like somebody who forgot how to do the infant Heimlich. Exactly. There's a very inside joke from a conversation we had two hours ago. <laughs> so, no, neither of us have done that, just, so, just to clear that air. <laughs> yeah, we did not do that. We did not do that. So, these experts were unanimous in their findings. Harold's gun was not the murder weapon. Which blows my mind that they even thought it was for a moment. It was really like, hey, this is the same caliber. Good enough. Exactly, yeah, exactly. There's definitely only one thirty-two caliber in the entire state of Connecticut, for sure. <laughs> Gotta be this dude. Yeah. He looks squirrely. Hmm. He's a queer-looking sort of fellow, as they like to put it. Then there was the confession, which, granted, you know, can be a little damning. Well, Cummings had ordered a medical examination by three doctors in the days after the confession. He said, please look at Harold and tell me, you know, his state of mind, his physical state. They said Harold had just been absolutely exhausted, and he would have said pretty much anything just to be able to go to sleep. It was 28 hours yeah. of questioning. Yeah, that's exhausting, and that, that's why they do that. It's to get you to that point where you're just like, oh my God, if I tell you I did it, can I go to bed? <laughs> yeah, like, whatever you want, man, sure. Can I have a fucking sandwich? Yeah, like <laughs> they want to p- push you physically and mentally to the edge of desperation so that you'll do something out of desperation, which is shitty. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Yeah. So... When Harold felt better, he retracted the confession, pretty much saying just that. All he'd wanted to do was sleep, and they would not stop asking him questions. And his alibi. That checked out as much as it could. I don't think they really had movie theater tickets back then, but the theater had been playing four films on a loop, um, and they were shorter back then. So he was able to correctly describe what had been playing at the theater, both when he came in at 7, and then when he left at 9. And that was backed up and corroborated. By the manager of the theater. Yeah, who would know? Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty legit. Yeah. So let's talk about what's at stake here. Obviously, the death penalty is in play here. We have, you know, uh, capital crime. So this again from Ken Armstrong on Connecticut's execution methods, which was really something to read. Let me tell you, holy shit. Connecticut in the 1920s did not hang the condemned by having him fall. The executioner had the condemned stand on on an iron plate, noose around his neck, to be yanked skyward courtesy of a contraption called the upright jerker. Why Connecticut eschewed a simple act of gravity for a system of weights and pulleys is not entirely clear. The patent obtained by an earlier warden might explain it. Yes. Yes, so basically it was uh, the world's worst carnival ride. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They called it the automatic gallows as well, was another name for it. Tended to strangle rather than break the neck. Thankfully fell out of use in the 30s, but I do believe that the patent for it was uh, achieved in, the, in like 1895. So this had been going on for a couple of decades. Wow. Pretty terrible. So... All right. If he gets convicted, this is probably what's going to end up happening. Especially the upright jerker. The upright jerker. So, okay, well, maybe he can appeal. Maybe he has a chance there. Well, no. Uh, again, from Armstrong, who notes something we've seen a lot on this show, the idea that wrongful convictions could even be a thing was just unthinkable to people back then. It was, if they have evidence, that person probably did it. He then makes a clear point on this, Ken Armstrong does, when noting that uh, Learned Hand, a federal judge, had just the year prior said that the idea of a wrongful conviction was to him, quote, an unreal dream. And just to really drive the point home, I'm going to add that Learned Hand became an appellate judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in 1924. Yeah, that feels like the wrong job. 
Yeah, um, the appeals court is supposed to decide whether a, a, a conviction or a judgment is proper and went through. And if you look at every single one and say, these have to be true. They have to be. I am learned hand. Somebody <laughs> had already deemed it so. So it stands. Yep, yep. Unbelievable. Like, basically, his job is just, like, get a rubber stamp and on every single appeal. No. 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 Denied. Fuck you. No. So, the law makes no mistake. (laughs) Never mistakes. So, this is what's what's up for Harold if things don't go his way. But, luckily, he has Homer Cummings on his side. Cummings told the judge, after laying out all the evidence and all the evidence against that evidence, that he was entering a nole prosequi? Prosequi? That's a word that is uh, pronounced in a way. No longer prosecute is what it translates exactly, to. Exactly, Whatever yes. the Latin pronunciation of no longer prosecute. Yes, basically drop the charge. That's what he wanted. And the judge did. People seeing reason. Oh, my God. Now, Israel was not there to see it. Harold, he was back in his cell. He had still had that concealed weapon charge regardless. When he was told, he said, that's good. It came out right. And thanks to the generosity of some friends, he was out and home within a few days. He went on to marry. He and his wife, Olive May, had two sons. I kind of love that name. He worked for the Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron Company. Uh, His job was oiling machinery. He worked seven days a week, made $60 a week, which is $910 a day. He had a house that he bought for $700. That's $10,000 a day. Wasn't much, but it was theirs. He was also a trustee at the church. It seemed like he was just living a normal, straight and narrow kind of life. And he was. Now, as for Cummings, he would go on to be the driving force behind the construction of Alcatraz. He essentially just took some federal agencies and smooshed them together to make the FBI. Mm -hmm. He was like, we have too many of those and they're all doing the same thing. Make them one. He became the Attorney General of the United States, and he is the reason we know all that stuff about uh, Harold Israel's life after his dropped murder charge, because Cummings had J. Edgar Hoover do some investigating on Harold. None other than J. Edgar Hoover. And so Hoover and his men dug up everything about Harold's life, all the details, and then Once he had all those details in hand, Cummings invited Harold to D.C. said, come visit me, come to my office. Harold came. He had no idea what was up. And what was up was a movie deal. I love this so much. Now, this is like 22 years after the dropped murder charge. So time has passed. 20th Century Fox wanted to make a movie about Harold Israel and the murder of Father Dominic. So when Harold got to the attorney general's office and sat down with the man who had made sure he wasn't wrongfully convicted two decades ago, he discovered that he had $18,000 coming his way. That's $270,000 today. Cummings had already put half into savings bonds and then set aside a chunk of it for taxes. So Harold went home with a check for about $2,500 in the bonds he got off the train at home, told his wife, and she nearly fainted. <clears throat> How sweet is that? It's just adorable. I love these two. They managed to replace their 13-year-old Ford with a 6-year-old Chevrolet. So they're not splashing out, you know? They're, they're being practical. Well, and so one of the things that I thought was the absolute cutest thing here is all of would actually write to Cummings all the time. Yeah, yeah. And she would write about these purchases and be like, Mr. Cummings, do you think that we're wasting, that we're squandering our money? Yeah, she wanted his approval. Yeah, like it was so cute. And they're doing things like adding a bathroom to their house. And I'm pretty sure that when you have a house you paid $700 for in the 1920s, that means the house didn't have a bathroom when you bought it. It didn't. You're putting the only bathroom in that house. Like it, it didn't actually have a bathroom, and I have that specific letter in here somewhere. Hold on, let me see if I can find it for you, because I, I do have it. Okay, 
This is from Olive. I think every house should have a bathroom. We have to wait for the bathroom fixtures, tub, etc., as they are very hard to get. But I hope we can soon get them, as it would be much more convenient with the bathroom. So, Mr. Cummings, I don't think it is extravagant to try to buy these things that we wanted all our life and could never get until you made it possible. Do you? She added a P.S. to that. We got a frame for your picture and have it sitting on our fireplace. The fireplace isn't a real one, though. Just an imitation. Oh, they're just so freaking wholesome. I know. It's like my heart. Like, she's just so sweet. And she's like writing to him. She's like, we didn't, we bought a newer model used car. Yeah. And <laughs> we're going to get dental care. We're going to get a refrigerator yeah. to replace our icebox. Because that one isn't doing a good job. And we're probably getting food poisoning like all the time. And yeah, she wrote to him uh, specifically regarding her husband's uh, feelings for, for him. To him, Mr. Cummings, you are next to God. He worships you. He said that he would trust you more than anybody in this world. You know, like how sweet. I love them. I love them. So uh, this really, it's, it's funny that for 20 years, Cummings had no idea what had become of Harold. And then this movie deal comes around. He started investigating because he, he probably wanted to decide, is this a good idea for this man? And so he finds out that this is, he's led a good quality life. But, you know, he, he's just struggling along like, like a lot of people were. And gets back in touch with them. And now this begins a, a friendship that lasts until uh, until his death. So I actually had in my notes that a, a few years after Harold was released from jail, he actually started writing the Cummings. And so he and oh. Cummings had a little bit I didn't know that. I didn't see that. Okay. Well and it was it was kind of like a man to man thing. So it was like we'll write a letter once every three years. Mm. But they actually did have like some letters that went where it was Dear friend, hmm. like which was very cute to me. And then after he got married, Olive kind of like took up that torch of like, I'll write your letters, babe. I got this. <laughs> and like, I suppose that even that 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 letter every three years couldn't really help him in the investigation because it would be weird to start, you know, writing to to Harold or, or to Olive. So, what do people in town think of you? What's your reputation? You keeping it on the up and up? You know, <laughs> that would be a little strange. So, yeah, he just was like, hey, Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> Do me a solid. Look up this guy in PA. So, yeah, Cummings and the Israel family exchanged letters on an ongoing basis. Cummings would send the family gifts. They would ask him for advice, and he would give it. Uh, the Cummings even came to Pennsylvania to visit the Israels in the summer of 1947, which is just delightful. So the film based on the wait time out. Did you see the story about what Olive did during that visit Go in ahead. preparation? Go ahead. You saw it. <laughs> I was I finishing up my notes at like twenty to five. Oh my god, Olive is the cutest. I'm just gonna say that. And so like a lot of this came from like their grandkids because Olive would very much love to tell these stories. And so as Olive is getting ready for the Cummings to come visit. She was afraid that they would think that their dog, who was like just some sort of mutt, looked too old. So she kicked everybody out of the house <laughs> to dye the dog so that the dog was more presentable. Dyed it black. <laughs> she really wanted to just impress them, but that is like just ridiculous and hilarious and so, so sweet at it the is, same yeah. time. <laughs> How do you die a dog? Oh, my gosh. That has to be quite the endeavor. <laughs> well, so back then, I think what there it wasn't like hair dye like we know today. Mm. It was more like pigment and shampoos. Okay, all right. And so she probably took, like, a, a black pigment shampoo to just, like, shampoo some color into the dog. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm just picturing a wet dog running around and just drips of dye going <laughs> everywhere and, like, shake off. And now you have a polka dot room. I'm imagining the new bathtub, like, stained black spots. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, the film was called Boomerang with an exclamation point. And it was directed by Ilya Kazan. They shot it in Stamford, Connecticut, because Bridgeport denied them permission, which I wouldn't be surprised 
it was pretty much known that some of the cops in Bridgeport still thought that they did that Harold had done it. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it. But, you know, hey, newsflash, we can just go over to the next town over, which looks pretty much identical, and no one's going to know. A uh, little trivia, Arthur Miller, playwright, has a cameo in the movie, in, like, the, the lineup they did. So, now the murder has not been solved. It was never solved, will never be solved, probably. But the two families stayed friends until Cummings died in 1956. He was 86 years old. Harold died about eight years later in 1964. He made it to 60 years old. Now Cummings' son predeceased him, but the Israel family lives on. And this is like part of their family history, which is just one of the more unique bits of like family lore I've ever seen. Yeah, my, uh, my great-grandfather, he was accused of the murder of a priest. But then this awesome prosecutor, who only did a couple bad things in his life, uh, he went on and said, no, I investigated the crap out of this, and uh, actually he's on the up and up and he's good, and you shouldn't prosecute him. And the judge was like, all right. And then they became friends, and he, you know, gave him a bunch of money from the movie he had made. Not he had made, but... So, yeah. Uh, do you have anything else on uh, the... Harold Israel story? Mm. I don't think I do. Oh, um, I was reading my notes and not paying attention. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> so, like, the only thing I really had was, uh, which I thought was cute. I don't know if you saw the bit about the snowstorm after Harold died. Oh, yeah. They cleared, didn't, didn't they clear out... A so, path so that people could come and, and pay their respects. Yeah, so he, he had died of black lung disease, and it was winter in a snowstorm, and there were drifts piled up to the car windows so that you couldn't travel. So the coal company pulled out heavy equipment and plowed the roads all the way up to the house so that everybody could come and visit Harold. Hmm, that's so nice. But I thought it was great, and then uh, they ended up with six grandkids, 13 great-grandkids, and a family tree that keeps growing. Yeah, probably a lot more since then, because I think that um, Ken Armstrong, he had that information about how many great-grandkids and stuff they had, and that was, article was written like years ago, like yeah. 20 years ago or something, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a great article, though, really excellently written. So, okay, uh, I have a recipe for you. Oh, no. Pear salad, terrain style. Select a ripe pear, squatty in shape, with a large base and of good flavor. Remove a small slice from the top and one from the bottom, then pair with a fluted knife. Remove the center of pear. Pair the pear. Mix the edible center portion with an equal amount of diced celery and moisten with mayonnaise. That is a horrifying sentence. I didn't like saying it. Moisten with mayonnaise. Don't like it. Don't like it. I moisten everything No, stop with it. No. I love mayonnaise. Love Ugh. it. Fill the space with this mixture. On the bottom of the pear and on the sides near the bottom, spread a little cream cheese, which has been moistened with cream. Then select very small lettuce leaves, which have a decided curve. Hothouse lettuce. Pressing the bottom of leaves to bottom of pear with a soft cheese, which will keep them in place. The leaves should come just to the top of the pear so that the whole resembles a miniature head of lettuce. Place a slice of pineapple, mask the top with a little cream mayonnaise, and over that set a small ring of green pepper. In the center, place a spoonful of bar-le-duc. I don't know what that is. Uh, this idea may also be carried out with apples. Bar-le-duc. Um, so yeah, this is basically, we're taking a pear and we're decorating the outside so it looks like a little mini head of lettuce. And we're stuffing the inside with mayonnaise and celery and pear. I'd eat it. I mean, I don't really understand celery. I mean, I don't understand. Bar-le-Duc is a commune in France. So it's just one of the regions of France. Bar-le-Duc jelly. Okay. Uh, current jelly is what it is. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, Composed of whole seeded currants. It's from the region of Bar-le-Duc. Okay. 
So yeah, that is my crazy recipe. Uh, it seems like a lot of work just to get something. I mean, I guess it's, it's presentation and everything. So <laughs> I'm sure it would look cute. I don't think it would be super yummy. Mayonnaise and, and, and mayonnaise and pear? I'd eat it. I know you would. I'll have to make it for you. <laughs> it will be the sloppiest looking head of mayonnaise you've ever seen. So I have made grilled, I, I've had grilled cheese days where I just make the weirdest grilled cheese I can think of. And like a pear grilled cheese sandwich, especially with like a, a Swiss, maybe some onions thrown in there. So like pear, onion, pungent cheese. And I always make my grilled cheese with mayo instead of butter. Delicious. So yes, I would eat it. I don't hate mayonnaise. I, I love mayonnaise. Prefer Miracle Whip. Ew, <laughs> I <know>. you monster. <laughs> I know many of our friend group has called me a monster for that, but I will not back yeah. down. I like it, it's tangy. Disgusting. <laughs> mayonnaise has such a Mayonnaise taste. is delicious. It tastes like fat. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I need the tang. I need the fat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, don't forget to come check out the Patreon where we have so much over there for you. Many, many, well, well over 100. Um, I think we're in the 120s as far as numbers of bonus episodes go. Um, and uh, yeah, come on over there and give us, a, give us a whirl if you'd like. We really appreciate all of our patrons very much. And um, don't forget to review, rate, all that fun stuff. It really helps us out. Tell us how awesome we are. Yes. And when this airs, we will have surpassed 100,000 downloads. Hopefully. We will have. We will have? We absolutely will have. Okay. <laughs> all of a sudden, the world just stops. Yeah. The world ends right before we hit 100K. Damn it. So close. We just needed one more download. So, yeah. It's, we're not a big show. Um, but uh, we're an awesome show. We're an awesome show, and our fans are awesome. So, our listeners, all you people who hear us talk of uh, the occasional murder that turns out kind of wholesome. This was a very wholesome murder. Strangely wholesome. I have a feeling that Amber's going to want to pick another crime to make up for this. <laughs> I mean, don't I anyway? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the wholesome ones are fun. It's a nice break. I do still feel bad for the priest who never got the thing, but also the police didn't do their job by actually following what leads were there. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Because they probably could have found the real killer if they weren't like, this guy looks like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> it's him. Yeah. And also uh, links for how you can contact and support us are in the show notes. And if you're on Twitter, I've been occasionally posting the uh, some snippets from old newspapers as I come upon them. Kbax writer, K B A X writer, is my uh, handle. If you want to come over and check that out, but sometimes I re also retweet those over on the Old Timey Crimey. So, so yeah. Uh, what you doing this week, Amber? I am uh, gonna be attacking my garden because I messed up. Hmm. I messed up a lot. So uh, the garden is growing very, very well into all the other things because I've never had a garden before, nor did I expect anything to grow. And uh, everything is growing into the other things. I've got a squash plant <laughs> that is knocking over a tomato cage right now. Oh, geez. So I am going to do what I can to salvage, trim, neaten, whatever, um, the garden and I learned a lot that I uh, will not do again next year so I will be uh, mostly doing garden stuff to keep my mind off of other things yeah I hear you on that um, I get to go uh, sign the consent form at the neurologist this week so that's super exciting for my um, hip surgery don't don't ask why a neurologist is doing my hip surgery but he is why not <laughs> why not so we're we're working towards getting to the point where I can I can function as a human being again. I'm excited about that. I stopped functioning as a human like a decade ago. <laughs> well, my body has also stopped functioning as a human body. So the amount of time that I spent in the bath this week, I just spend whole entire days in the bath researching. I know. And you say this to me and I am nothing but jealous of the fact that I cannot do the same. I mean, eventually it gets to the point where you're like, can I just sit at a desk? Can I just sit at a damn desk for eight hours? Honestly, I just want to do work and not be distracted by pain. And um, yeah, but, but it, I mean, baths, baths are nice. 
I think See, it, mine is like, can I just sit in the damn bath for five minutes without somebody having yeah, to pee? Yeah. There are two other bathrooms in this house, but no. It's gotta be this one. Yep. Yeah. I think uh, after if I if I get better um after my surgeries, it'll pro- I'll probably go a little while without taking baths just to get a break from it. <laughs> Cause I'm like every day I'm like, well, I guess I'm gonna take another research bath. <laughs> so and I don't prune up somehow. I'm like uh a superhero. I'm that secret- is your superpower. I'm secretly a mermaid. You might be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's what we learned today, guys. Christy is a mermaid. Yes, absolutely. So uh, don't take any wooden nickels would be my advice for the day. I'm not even going to take anything because there's, there's so much wholesomeness in the story that I can't give any, you know, advice. Get you a girl like Olive. Get you a girl like Olive May. <laughs> Wow, is she just the sweetest? She is, yes. I love her and her dog dying. All right. Oh, that boy, that sounds that, no, that, yeah. that that went wrong. That uh, went very wrong. That, Try again. I love her and her dog recoloring. There we go. <laughs> That's much better. All right. On that note. Uh, ah! My tens unit is gonna fall down. We will see you next week. Bye! Bye. Uh sources. Sources would be good. I'll do mine real quick. Sure. Smithsonian Mag by Ken Armstrong, WBUR.org by Lisa Mullins and Lynn Jolacour, and TheMarshallProject.org. Find a Grave, Wikipedia, Ken Armstrong in Smithsonian Mag, and from Newspapers.com, The Bridgeport Telegram, and The Hartford Current. Boom. Goes the dynamite. (laughs) No dynamite here. Maybe I'll do another dynamite story. Oh, boy. It felt appropriate with a priest. <laughs> Sorry. Clap. <laughs> Give yourself a round of applause for that sneeze. Waiting <laughs> if there's gonna be a second one. <laughs> I think I'm good. Okay. Well, if you need to sneeze, sneeze. Well, I don't have control over it. Oh my god, we gotta get the same time. Oh, let's get that out of the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>